All right. Hey, good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys today. We're going to continue our series called The King is Coming. It's going to be a great day here at Three Circle. The King is Coming. That is our Christmas series this year. And we're looking at Christmas from this unique angle for the first two weeks of these two prophets from the Old Testament who prophesied about the coming king, the coming Messiah, who prophesied about Jesus. And last week we looked at Jeremiah. Today we're going to look at another one of those prophets. His name was Zephaniah. You've probably not heard a lot of preaching from Zephaniah, right? It's, he was one of the minor prophets. But what I want to do is give you a quick little history lesson to catch you up so you understand who he was, and it'll help you better understand the power of this prophecy that we celebrate at Christmas time. So Zephaniah, all right? is a part of this world known as the nation of Israel, God's people. Now, they had a bit of a history at this point. So if you remember, the, the Israelites said, we want a king, and, and, and God gave them a king, King Saul, and he, he was kind of up and down. But the number two king, the second king, made them a world power. His name was King David. You remember him, right? King David runs all of their enemies off. No one wants to mess with Israel, and they become a world power, uh, really the world power, uh, funny enough. And then his son Solomon was just as great as he was. We like to say David liked to, to, to fight people, and Solomon liked to build stuff, okay? There was no one left to fight when Solomon, so Solomon's like, well, what do I do? I guess I'll build awesome stuff. And so he built the temple and built the palace, and, and, and Jerusalem just became this amazing city with these ornate walls, and, and it was the envy of the ancient world world. But while this kingdom was here, there was this other bunch gaining power and they were known as the Babylonians. They're just right over here. And they were barbaric, but they were no, no match for the Israelites. All right. But then what happened subsequently as Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes the king and then other kings, the kings become wicked and they stopped following God. They got so bad, they split the kingdom in half. You got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom now. It's all God's people, but some are in a place that they called this kingdom of Israel. The others in Judah. Jerusalem's down here. And, and you know this, when you divide things, it becomes weaker, right? So now, all of a sudden, Babylon's getting more powerful and God's people are weaker and they're kings. Now there's two sets of kings going. So if you ever read in the Old Testament, you get confused. Now there's two sets of kings, one for the northern, one for the southern kingdom. And they're all wicked. They're bad kings, bad guys. And it gets so bad that there's this one king that comes along right before Zephaniah, who we're going to read today. Right before his lifetime, this king was so wicked, he sacrificed one of his own sons as a burnt offering to a false god. That's how bad it got. Well, with all of this going on, the people of God are not even reading the Bible anymore. They, they don't even know where the scrolls of the law of God are anymore. They're buried in a temple that's now in disrepair. All right, A famous king comes on the scene that you may remember if you grew up in church. His name is King Josiah. In the middle of all these bad kings, there's one good king that comes along. And King Josiah, as a young man, says, hey, we're, doing, we're, we're not doing well here at all. We need to worship the true God. And at this point, the whole country was wicked. And it, it's getting darker and darker. Sound like anything you've ever heard of? It seems like the whole world doesn't believe in God anymore. Secularism was happening there in the ancient world, just like it is today. And they, no one wanted a Bible. Just got to sit. It was an ancient relic. And Josiah says, no, no, we're going to bring that back. The people of Judah and Israel at this point had started worshiping false gods. And if you walked around Jerusalem, you'd find little altars to false gods everywhere. Josiah, as a king, says, I'm tearing all that stuff down. And we're going to revamp and remodel and bring back the temple. Well, while they're in there cleaning everything up, guess what they find? The Bible. You may remember this famous story from the Old Testament. They find the scrolls, and they bring the scrolls to Josiah. And when he sees them, he says, this is what we need. He begins to weep. 
And Josiah, as a king, in this wicked, wicked time, reaches out to the people of the nation and says, we need to worship the one true God. Well, if a king's going to try to start a revival, what does he need? Every revival needs a good preacher, right? I grew up where revival happened every year, and you'd bring a preacher who was real loud and screamed a lot into town. We'd have revival. Well, guess who Josiah's preacher was? Zephaniah. In fact, Zephaniah and Josiah had one another's cell phone numbers. You want to know why? No one got that joke? That's a preacher joke and y'all don't even care? Don't let a good joke go by y'all, all right? So they, they knew each other because Zephaniah was one of the only prophets that came from the royal line. Zephaniah's great-great-granddad had been a king. So Zephaniah knew the kings in the palace. And so Josiah would have known him. And most commentators believe that these two guys worked together to try to redeem the people of God. Josiah through his leadership and Zephaniah through his preaching. Now you know who Zephaniah is, right? And Zephaniah is preaching his heart out to the people, telling them, turn back to God, stop doing bad things, believe in the one true God. And Josiah on his side is a king, trying to get the people to do the right thing. And, and here's what I want you to understand. A lot of people are going to believe in God because of these two guys, but it's not going to change the whole country. In fact, it's going to keep getting so bad for the Israelites that God's going to allow that country of Babylon to come and take them over, burn down Jerusalem, and take them into exile. All right? But here's, what, here, here's something I want to help you with. First lesson we learned today. Zephaniah and Josiah did everything they could. Did it matter? Does it count what they did? even though they still end up in Babylonian exile? And I will tell you today, absolutely it did. Because we're going to get to heaven one day, and there's going to be a ton of Jewish people in heaven because of the ministry of Josiah and Zephaniah, who we're going to read today. And it all mattered. So in a world that seems like it's getting more dark and more wicked every day, I bet sometimes you may think, what does it matter? The whole world's going downhill. What does it matter if we show up at church and teach our kids about Jesus? Does it even matter? And I say to you today, church, yes, it does matter, and it will matter for eternity, all right? But you need to know that Zephaniah and Josiah do everything they can. Yeah, everything they can, but they're still going to Babylon. It's still going to happen. And as Zephaniah is preaching, in chapter 3, God says to him, I want you to tell my people about a king is coming. While you're telling them that judgment is coming, I want you for this little piece to tell them about a king who is coming. And this is pretty awesome because God allows Zephaniah to see some stuff that no one else can see. Zephaniah is allowed to see into the future. And he can see the Babylonian exile that's coming. It's going to be about 100 years of really bad stuff. He can see it. Then God says, let me show you further out. And he can then see something incredible. He can see the birth of Jesus. He can see Jesus coming. And he is going to describe some things about Jesus to us. But not only that, God allows Zephaniah to see even past our own lifetimes. He can see not only the first coming of Jesus, Christmas, he can see all the way out to the second coming of Jesus where God will establish his rule and reign over all things. All right? So how many of you are excited to hear about Zephaniah now? Y'all ready? Y'all ready to read this? Okay. All I need is two or three of you. The Bible says two or three gathered, there will be. So all I needed was two or three, and I got like eight of you, all right? Here we go. So with all that in mind, Zephaniah is preaching his heart out. And here he tells us about a king who is coming. Zephaniah 3.14. What does he say? 
He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and he has cleared away your enemies. The first thing he says to us is we should rejoice over this king. Let me tell you what that looks like. In World War II, Hitler and the Nazis, y'all remember them, right? One of the worst regimes in human history. So they come into power in Germany, and then Hitler decides, I don't just want Germany, I want the whole world. So he decides, I'm going to try to take over the world. So he starts by taking little countries. He takes Poland. He takes some of these. But he understands that if he's going to take over the world, Hitler understood he had to get, he had to get one of the world powers. And the first world power he goes for is France. And if you remember this, the rest of the world was stunned by how quickly Hitler took France. France surrendered within weeks and if you were a French person, I want you to understand how this went. On one afternoon, you were having a croissant, you know, living life. The French eat lots of bread, stay skinny. What in the world are they doing, right? So on one afternoon, you're being a normal French person living in democracy and freedom, and you wake up the next morning, and you're under the rule of the Gestapo. And the Nazis march into Paris and hang swastikas all over Paris. And you wake up and you're under a dictator. And you have no freedom. And you can be thrown into prison like that and they don't have to prove anything. And that's what the French people woke up to the next day. And that's what the Israelites are going to wake up to in Babylon. But my friends, that's what every one of us wake up to without Jesus. Slavery to sin. And slavery to eternity without God. So, what happened? Well, for several years the French people were underneath the brutal regime of Hitler. But while that was going on, there was another group of guys. Zephaniah talks about a king that was coming. Well, there was a group called the Allies. Y'all remember them, right? The Allies, this army that the world built. It included Winston Churchill and his boys, the British. It included Roosevelt and his guys, the Americans. Even the Australians got involved, mate. You know what I mean? I mean, they all came together. The Allies. You remember what the Allies did? They said, we're going to take them down, and here's how we're doing it. We're going to France. He took France. We're taking it back. And 18 to 24-year-old boys predominantly hit the beaches of Normandy in France. And they broke through that German line, giving their lives. And when they broke through that line, that wasn't enough. They said, we're going further. We're going to, all the way to Paris. We don't stop until Hitler's out of here. And they did it. And they won it. And they got them out of there. And on Liberation Day in Paris, it looked like this. When Hitler came to town, they all hid in their homes. But the day the Allies came to town, the good guys showed up. They knew we can celebrate now because now we have freedom. That's what it looked like in the streets that day. That's what exultation and joy looks like when you know you were a prisoner and you've been set free. They're happy. Look at this next picture. There's the boys that have just given their lives, right? They're tired because they've been fighting. That's them walking in. That's the Allies. And this is my favorite one. Look at that sign, liberation. Liberation, that's what it was. They knew they had been set free. See, every dictator and leader and king has an agenda. And the agenda of Hitler was all bad for anyone underneath his leadership. But they understood when the Allies showed up, their agenda was freedom, not oppression. Oh, holy night, one of the lines says, All oppression shall cease because of Jesus. 
See, Zephaniah is telling us we should exalt and have joy because we were once bound to sin and we've been set free. Folks, that's what it should look like. So the first thing we're reminded of is Christmas is a reminder that we have every reason to have joy. You have every reason to have joy, even if your circumstances aren't great. You have a reason to have joy at Christmas because of Jesus. Jesus is a king who is so great. He can give his people joy without even changing their circumstances. Just knowing him is enough to have joy. Just knowing there is a king who I know and his name is Jesus brings me joy no matter what my circumstances. The children of Israel are going to have to hold to this promise while they're in Babylon. And they wake up every day underneath the brutal reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet they can have joy because they know he's not our real king. It would behoove modern day Christians to remember the dude in the White House, whoever he may be or she may be one day, is not your king. Your king is Jesus if you're a Christian and you can have joy in that. Don't forget that. Jesus wants us to have joy. So what kind of king is he? Well, listen to how he talked. When Jesus came, what Zephaniah could see was the king coming. Well, he came. Jesus, born at Christmas, grew up to be a man. And Jesus said this in John 15. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's what, Je- what king talks like that about his people. Most kings just want the people to serve him. But this king, Jesus, wants joy for us. Trust me, Hitler wasn't a guy you'd want to hang out with. You weren't going to go have coffee with Hitler. The French people wanted nothing to do with him. They just wanted to hide from him, right? But Jesus, Jesus is a good king. Jesus has a personality. And do you understand that Jesus is not grumpy? Have you ever been around a person who's just grumpy all the time? Like an Eeyore type? Remember Winnie the Pooh and there's Eeyore? Oh, Lord. What was Eeyore anyway? Was he a horse or donkey or something? Poor guy. Always sad. He was terrible, right? And you just walk in the room, just take... That's not Jesus. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. John said about Jesus, if I wrote down everything he said and did, all the books in the world could not contain what I would write about Jesus. And Jesus tells you here something about himself. He says, I am full of joy. Like, I am joyful. If you want to know who God is, God's full of joy. But not only does he want to be joyful, he wants everyone who follows him to have joy. And not just some, but full joy. So here's a word at Christmas time. Stop being grumpy Christians. Because Jesus is full of joy and non-circumstantial joy. This is why Christians can be joyful in hospital rooms with cancer or in prison cells like Paul and the Philippians. It, It doesn't matter. What we go through as Christians, we have joy that can't be robbed from us. In Zephaniah 3.15, he goes on to make clear who he's talking about here. Look what he calls Jesus. He's the king of Israel, and look at the next line. He's not just a man. This one who is coming is a king, and he is a God. He's the king of Israel and the Lord. I guess the Pharisees did not read Zephaniah because they got mad at Jesus for claiming to be God and Messiah. And they said, that's not possible. God is one, and no, that can't be. Well, they didn't read Zephaniah, who clearly says, the king of Israel, the Messiah, is going to also be God himself, the Lord. But look at this next line. This is Christmas time, y'all. He is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. That's what kind of king we have. 
He's God and man. He's Jesus, and he is our king. And when you have Jesus, look what it says. You shall never again fear evil. Write it down. Christmas is a reminder that God is with us. Emmanuel, God himself, is with us. Now, it is important for us to note what it does not say. It says if you have Jesus, he's with you. You don't have to fear evil. But it does not say that you'll never experience evil, does it? See, these people who got this promise first are going to go to a horrible place, Babylon. See, a lot of believers who believe because of Josiah's leadership and Zephaniah's preaching, a lot of those believers are going to end up, and their kids are going to end up in Babylon. They're going to experience great evil, and so will you, and so will I. You are not going to escape the evil of this world in an experiential sense. We are all going to deal with disease and war and sickness and pain and it's every day and it's unrelenting, right church? But the promise of Jesus at Christmas is that he will be with us no matter what we face. He's saying to the people of Israel, you're going to Babylon, I'm going with you. So this week if you're headed to a doctor and you're wondering if it's cancer, Jesus is with you. And when you're at the attorney's office and you don't know why the marriage is falling apart and you just wonder, am I all alone here? Jesus, if you're a believer, Jesus is with you, in your midst, connected with you. Christmas reminds us he's with us. That's why Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How many of you are thankful today? That our God is with us. Our King is with us. Let's continue looking at the prophecy. Verse 17 is probably Zephaniah's most famous line. He says this about our King. So if you want to know who he is. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Now, I got the pleasure... Because my parents were so young of knowing my great-grandmother. Her name was Cordy Bell. Cordy Bell. And she was a firecracker, man. And so this is my granddad. You hear me talk a lot about. It's his mom, okay? And she didn't die till after me and Nan, my wife, were married, okay? So I knew her growing up. And so her house was one of these old southern houses, like a shotgun style, with a door on the front and a door in the back so you could open both of them, air conditioned. <laughs> Let me tell you something. In July, in South Mississippi, that don't work so well. But she thought it did. So you go to her house, you sweat, okay? That's my grandmother. She had a chicken pen, and I let the chickens out a lot. All kinds of stories. She was awesome. And here's what I love. From being a little kid, all I'm talking my teenage years, I knew when I got there to the front of that house and I hit her little doorbell, I could immediately hear my grandmother. Her kitchen was towards the back of the house, and that's where she always was. But when you hit that button, she knew you were coming. You hit that button, you could hear a little, ooh, in the back of the house. You could hear her joy. Her joy would build like dropping a rock in the ocean into a wave. And you could hear as she walked through the house, coming to the front door, you hadn't seen her yet, but you could hear her coming. And she's just, woo, 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 you know, this little noises coming out of her. And she would hit that porch, and you're standing outside a screen porch, you can see her. She would open that old creaky door, and she would grab whoever she got first and hug you and kiss you several times, all right? That was what she did. And even like as a teenager, I still I acted like I didn't like it. I loved every bit of it. I knew when I hit that button, she's going crazy coming down that house. And you know what I knew? I knew that that woman loved me, and she was so glad I was there. 
She was literally singing in her heart over me. Now, now just stop for a second. This is, this is not me giving you something I made up to make you feel better. This is the Bible. And it says that the God of all the universe and all of his splendor and glory sings over you with great joy. That's how much God loves you. That he, he can't contain his joy over you. He loves you that much. Is that not encouraging today? To know that that's how much God loves you, number one. But now this does beg a question, doesn't it? If God sings, what does he sound like? The Bible lets us know that God, when he spoke in Genesis, when he just spoke, he spoke the universe into existence. Everything we know, from planets to atoms to molecules to DNA, he spoke it all into existence just by talking. If that happens when he talks, what happens when he sings? And what does he sound like? When God sings, does he sound kind of like Pavarotti, like power? Or is it more light, got a light touch to it? See, all great singers know how to capture an audience with power and dynamic and also a dynamic that's light and quiet, like a whisper. And you can capture both ways. So when I think of God singing, and maybe you, I do, first of all, think power, right? Maybe he sounds like this when he sings. It's like a blizzard. Maybe when God sings, he sounds like this, like a windstorm blowing through the trees. Or maybe when he sings, it sounds like this, sheer power. Maybe when he sings over us with joy, he sounds like this, rushing water. John the Revelator said he sounded like that when he heard him in Revelation. But you know, I just believe God's a God of dynamics and he knows how to capture us another way. Maybe when God sings over us, he sounds like this. Just a light snow. Maybe when he wants you to know how much he loves you and he sings over us, he sounds like this. Just a gentle creak to grab your attention. Maybe when God sings over us and his love for us, he sounds like this just a gentle breeze. Maybe when God sings, he sounds like this, just a rolling rain. Now church, hear me, hear my heart this morning. I don't know what God sounds like when he sings. I don't know if he's loud and he captures us with his power or if he's quiet and he touches us with his intimacy. But here's what I know. When God chooses to sing, he sings about us. He's singing about you. He's singing about every person who has ever believed in his son. He's singing over every person who has ever said yes to the crucified and risen Jesus. He's singing over every person who is blood-bought and headed to eternity with him. When God chooses to sing, he's singing over and about us. And that brings me great joy, doesn't it, you church? That's who he is. That's how great he is, how magnificent he is. And he loves us that much. So Christmas is a reminder that God is joyful over us. He's joyful over us. Zephaniah in his closing lines actually brings us to the crescendo, if you will. He's actually going to speak directly for God. This is God speaking to us, his words. And I want you to notice something in these verses. I want you to notice a series of of what we'll call I will statements. God's going to say several times, emphatically, I will. 
And I think his I wills coincide with a lot of our I am's. In fact, I think every time you and I have an I am, God has an I will for it. And I want you to see how this works. It was certainly true for the Israelites going into Babylon, and it's certainly true for us living in our own version of Babylon today, right? So, if this Christmas you are saying, I am disconnected, God is going to say, I will gather. Let's read these verses, and I want you to see how he says that. Zephaniah 3, 18 through 20. He says, I will, do you see that? I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You hear all those I will statements? Now that first one he says is I will gather. That's for all of us who feel disconnected. Some of you here today and you go, I don't belong anywhere. I don't have any, anywhere to belong. That's how they're going to feel in Babylon, the Israelites. They're going to feel like we don't belong here. we got a wicked king and we have no temple to worship. What are we supposed to do? And God says to all of us who sometimes feel like we're in a foreign land. Anyone, anyone know what I'm talking about? Anybody look around and go, wow, we got here fast. I think the fast forward button has been hit on our culture. It's going faster than I thought, going down faster than I thought. Don't be hopeless. Don't be without joy. God says, I can still keep you connected to me and to other believers. Secondly, maybe this Christmas you say, I am attacked. Well, that's how the Israelites felt. God says to them, I will deal with your oppression. I will deal with all oppressors. You don't need to worry about it. He's saying to the people of Israel, you don't worry about Babylon. You just keep serving me. Even if they take your life, I will be with you. You don't worry about Babylon. And I would just say to you today, we don't need to worry and fear what's going on around us. Remember what he said, you don't have to fear evil anymore. You don't have to fear evil because God is with us. Thirdly, if you feel helpless this Christmas, God promises in the verses we just read that he will save us. Look at what he says, for the lame and outcast, I will save them. Lame means they can't walk. They're helpless. And God says, I can save you. When the Israelites, who had had so much power and prestige, ended up in Babylon, they were helpless. Like the French people, when they woke up to Hitler's rule, they couldn't do anything to save themselves. They had to surrender. It took the allied troops coming in to save them. And you and I, in sin, can't do anything either. But helplessness is not something Americans like to admit, is it? We like to be the heroes. We have grown up thinking that we can handle anything. But my friends, without Jesus, you are helpless. Oh, I know. Some of you are looking at me and you're going, dude, you have no idea how successful I am. I know where I'm preaching today. I'm in Fairhope, Alabama, where we got clocks made out of flowers. <laughs> I got you. I know my audience. Nice houses, nice neighborhoods, build them as fast as we can. We're doing well. We're successful. And the God of the universe would say to you, if you don't have me, you can have all the money in the world and not have anything. We are helpless without Jesus, but with Jesus, we have a helper. Our king, he's the only king ever. All kings look at his subjects and say, you serve me and you make my life good. Jesus is the king of the universe and he comes and lays his life down to give us joy and take our sins away and give us everything we need. 
He's the king who serves. Amazing. I love this. I want you to understand that the Israelites, when they went into Babylon, were totally ashamed of themselves. They realized real fast, oh my goodness, we've messed our lives up. Most of them understood we deserve what we're getting. And God says through Zephaniah to all who feel ashamed that he will change our shame to praise. Look what he says to them. He says, if you'll trust me, there will be a time where I will change your shame into praise and renown. We have a king who covers our shame. This is why the New Testament says of Jesus, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of you are right now sitting here and you think, If the people sitting around me knew the kind of person I am, the things I have done, the ways I have messed it up, the ways I have blown my life, if they knew that, they wouldn't even want to be sitting in this room with me. Well, let me tell you this, my friend. The king wants you in the room. We have the king who covers our nakedness. He doesn't exploit us. He protects us. He doesn't abuse us. He renews us. That's who our king is. The French people knew when Hitler got there, they better hide. But when the allies showed up, they could get out in the streets and rejoice because the allies came to set them free. My friends, Satan, Jesus said, came to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I am here and I am the king to give life and life more abundantly to set us free. That's who Jesus is. And we rejoice over that this Christmas. You may be here and say, I am lonely, and many of you are at Christmas. Christmas brings out loneliness for many. Well, the Israelites felt that, and God said to them, I will bring you in. I will bring you in. You're not going to stay lonely. You belong to me. I am with you. So God says to the lonely, I will bring you in. In our first gathering today, in Fairhope, I was standing in the back of the room. That's the service that I get to worship in. I was in the back of the room and I noticed two different widows who I preached both of their husbands' funerals. They were sitting together and they were singing and worshiping Jesus. And I thought, I can't imagine how lonely Christmas is right now for them. But there they were, big smiles on their faces, singing and worshiping Jesus. Why? Because I think they understand that as long as they have Jesus, they are never alone. That's the kind of king he is. And then finally, if you're purposeless, Jesus says here through the words of Zephaniah, he will make you matter. You may feel like you don't matter at all. You may feel like today, if you died tomorrow, the world would barely know you were here. You're like a little bitty pebble thrown into the ocean, a ripple for about that long and gone. No one will even know. But the God of the universe says about you that there's never been anyone like you and never will be. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And if you will trust in him, look what he says to the Israelites. I'm going to make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. I'm going to restore to you everything before your eyes. In other words, God says, I know you feel like you don't matter while you're in Babylon to his people of Israel. He says, but you will always matter to me. And some of you in this room, you feel invisible sometimes. You feel like, I got nothing to offer the world. I'm not talented. I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I have nothing to offer. The world won't even know that I'm here. But the God of the universe does. He knows you so well. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows how many of you lost lately, you know? He knows you. He knows your needs more than you even know your needs. And he cares about you. And the words of Zephaniah to the people of Israel were all about Christmas. This king is coming and here's what he's going to be like and here's what he's going to do. This is the king's agenda and it's a good agenda. 
He's good. But, but remember, in the end, he never says to the people, you won't experience evil. He says, you don't have to fear it ever again. Because your king is with you. They're going into Babylon, and Jesus is going with them. And today, in closing, I'm reminded of this. So this morning, sometimes God drops something on you last minute. So early this morning, I'm sitting in my living room, drinking a cup of coffee. And I'm looking over my notes. And I just pop over to Twitter to check on what's going on with Kentucky. So Kentucky had the worst outbreak of tornadoes in its history. It's one of the worst in American history. And what I read this morning says that the highest recorded wind on, in history that's ever been recorded on planet Earth happened the other night in Kentucky. An almost 300-mile-an-hour wind was recorded in Kentucky. One of the tornadoes stayed on the ground for 200 miles. And there's a town called Mayfield, Kentucky, who basically this morning, it, it basically does not exist anymore. Everything is destroyed. Everything. The courthouse, historic, it's just rubble. And I'm, I'm hitting some stuff, and I see a pastor from Mayfield, Kentucky, who went to his church that is totally destroyed. There is nothing left. And this pastor walks into the rubble, and as he's walking, he finds this on the ground. And all the rubble, totally intact, this piece of music. And through the insulation and destruction, you can see the title. All praise to him. Look at the first line. All praise to him, the God of light. And you say, well, how can you say that? Where was God? Where was he when the tornadoes hit? I'll tell you where he was. He was in the midst of his people like he always is. No, he didn't extract them from the tornado. No, the tornado still hit. But Jesus was in every tornado shelter. He was in every home. He was with every one of his children in Kentucky, even in the middle of the disaster. And he was in Babylon with his people. And he'll be with you in the doctor's office when you're not sure if it's cancer or not. And he'll be there when you're breathing your last breath. And he'll be there on the other side of it waiting for you because your king never leaves you. He is with you. That's what we celebrate. And he was with them. So today we worship at Christmas time the God who never fails us, who's always faithful, and we rejoice in him even in our circumstances. And today if you're here and, and you don't have a relationship with this king, why in the world would you not want to know him? Why would you not want to give your life to him and say right now where you're sitting, I believe in you and I trust in you. The Bible says if you will simply believe upon him and give your life to him, he will save you. You become a part of this thing we're talking about. All of these promises become true for you in a moment when you believe upon this Jesus. And I pray that you will today. And for all of you believers in the room that feel like sometimes you're in Babylon, well, you're not there alone. Rejoice. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word today, your grace, and your love for us. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that we can trust you. And now, even in this room, may we rejoice over you in Jesus' name. Amen.